Hello, Dragonfly Nation. This is the Canadian Bushcraft Podcast with your host, Caleb Musgrave. This is episode 131 of the podcast, all about doing more with less. So stay tuned. To know the landscape is to open up a door To feel deeper connected than you've ever felt before We know that you will love this podcast So shut your mouth and listen to Canadian Bushcraft This is a new segment for the podcast called Know Your Trees. Each episode, we're going to be having one segment called Know Your Trees, where we talk about one specific tree, its ecology, its uses, its natural history, its benefits to humankind, as well as to nature itself. With this first episode, I figured we should talk about my first tree, the first tree that I really learned about growing up, and that was Thuja occidentalis, also known as Arbor Vitae, or the Eastern White Cedar. The Eastern White Cedar is a long-lived coniferous tree and it is a beautiful specimen and it is found in many different kinds of ecosystems it can grow in mixed hardwood it can grow in open field it can grow in boggy wet environments it can grow on the sides of cliffs because it is a survivor it likes to live in preferable seclusion of other trees so it has less competition often when you find it in mixed hardwood it is a very scraggly tree it is very often not a huge tree But when it gets out into open areas or it gets into a deep swamp where there's less competition, man, do they get big. And if they live on a cliff where it's really ragged and hard to live, they can get tiny and haggard looking, really tiny little trees, sometimes only as big as your thumb in diameter. But in the right environments, they can get as big as 60 inches in diameter. They get huge. The eastern white cedar, known as Gijaganduk in Anishinaabemowin, is a prevalent tree and sometimes in the right environments it can become a problematic tree Uh, on many properties that i've inhabited and have traveled on they can become the the only tree they can outcompete their neighbors in the right conditions and the environment where it becomes more effective for one cedar becomes more effective for two cedars which becomes more effective for 10 cedars and suddenly you have an old farm field that backs onto a wetland that used to be an old sugar bush, but all those maples died and the cedars took over. And they took over starting in the field and then pushed their way into the hardwoods and took over. So they can become almost invasive to the point that a cedar bush can be choked. It can be completely choked and swollen up with nothing but dead cedar trees under the bigger cedar trees. Now, this is problematic for eco, uh, for the ecosystem because there's not a lot of, you know, biodiversity happening in that kind of spot. It becomes more challenging for other plants to thrive. And eventually, as the cedars get bigger and bigger and they're trying to compete with each other, those branches and those smaller trees just die. And it becomes this forest of just dead branches and stumps and trees that stay for a long time. Now, this is problematic on many, on many fronts, A, it becomes harder for animals to live in there, and so they, they, they can't thrive, and so they usually avoid it. Rough grouse, red squirrels, or also known as the pine squirrel, can live in those ecosystems, but they often use it more for traversing from one ecosystem to another because they are safe from predators because it's such a thick environment they can get up into the trees easily. White-tailed deer will go through cedar bush for the same reasons, 
but they don't usually live there. They won't re uh, regularly stay there for long periods. Sometimes you'll find a deer bed, but you usually just find deer trails. This also becomes a problem because it chokes out any other plants. Other species of trees won't thrive in that environment. The soil becomes more acidic because of the cedar tree's acidity. It's ascorbic acid that is naturally occurring in its needle in its scales because it doesn't have needles and doesn't have leaves. It has something kind of in between that we call scales. And these are these broad, coniferous, evergreen foliage that is very aromatic. When you crush it or you chew it, it's very aromatic. The wood is aromatic. The bark is aromatic. Every aspect of this tree is very good smelling. When you carve it, when you, when you shave it up, it smells divine. And there's a lot of uses to these things. We'll get to uses in a moment. I want to finish talking about this natural he history and ecology. The other problem that happens in a cedar bush like this is it becomes a timber fuel issue. Timber fuel is the concept of what carries a wildfire. If a wildfire happens in a cedar bush that is thick like that and overgrown and has all that dead standing timber in it, whew, it can go up fast and it can go up hot and it can cause a lot of damage as irreparable. Cedar, because it grows in poor, it can grow in poorer soils than its neighbors or its cousins, will often grow in places where the soil is very thin. And it's on top of rocky surface, whether it's Canadian shield or limestone bed or whatever it may be. And so when a wildfire goes through those kind of spots, and it's that intense because of how much timber and fuel there is from timber in there, hoo boy. Uh, it can effectively sterilize the soil, turning almost everything that is in there to ash. And it can take hundreds, if not thousands of years for that soil to return and that ecosystem to recover from that. That doesn't mean that cedar shouldn't be around fire. If you clear a forest, if you, not necessarily clear, but you start to do stewardship to that forest, you start removing the dead trees, the lower limbs, thinning those cedar trees, introducing other trees and encouraging biodiversity, the risk of fire diminishes rapidly. And so that is one way that humans can interact with those trees and those ecosystems to benefit it. We've been doing that same thing on a property that I've been helping take care of and steward for about six, seven years now. And it's been beautiful to see elms popping up and maples popping up and basswoods popping up and skullcap and American ginseng and all these other plants. And now we're seeing more deer and more turkey and more grouse and birds of prey and all these other amazing animals entering that ecosystem because we've removed mm, less than 10, less than 10% of the population of cedar, but have removed a lot of the dead standing trees as well. That thinning benefits the cedar trees, but that natural tendency of the cedars to kind of overwhelm and overgrow can lend its benefit to us as bushcrafters. Cedar wood is very soft and one of the easiest woods to split by hand. You need very few wedges. You can get by very, very lightly with equipment to get through a cedar and get a lot of good wood out of it. The bark can be turned into everything from rope and baskets to wigwam covers or lodge shingles. The inner bark is edible. In fact, the Nishnabek have been uh, known to use the twigs, the inner bark from the twigs, shaving off the outer bark and peeling that inner bark and stewing it to make basically what I often refer to as bush noodles. 
But regardless, a lot of this tree has uses to the point that the name Arborvitae, Tree of Life, really makes a lot of sense. It's a resinous wood, and that resinous wood burns very rapidly. That's why it's a danger in wildfire. All those lower branches are packed full of resin, making amazing snap wood to make twig bundles that burns hot, but also very fast. Meaning that this is some of the best kindling that you have in the Ontario woods and around the Great Lakes. Now, where does this tree grow? It grows from the Great Lakes all the way to the East Coast, down into the American Northeast. With a little spackling of it here and there in places like Indiana, Pennsylvania, uh, as well as even as far west, I've seen uh, varieties in Missouri. Now, a lot of those trees are often ornamentals that have been left to go feral, and they disperse their seeds very rapidly through birds, such as the cedar waxwing, as well as other birds that consume the seeds from their tiny little cones and disperse them through their, fe uh, through their feces. This is all well and good, because this tree has a lot of uses. As we said, the bark, we've already talked about the bark and the twigs, the wood itself is amazing. When you find a cedar tree growing in the middle of a cedar bush, they are competing with their neighbors. They're competing with all their siblings and cousins, trying to reach that sky faster than their neighbors so that they can photosynthesize better and survive and thrive. And due to that, often when you get to the middle of a cedar bush, you find large, tall, fairly not free, and fairly straight wood. And this is because they're trying to compete and they don't have time to twist and turn and make a bunch of branches. they got to get up tall. And amongst them, you'll find all these dead poles that are very straight, mostly branch-free, and rot-resistant. Because that's one of the amazing attributes of the cedar tree. It's resins and the thujone chemical compound that is in the wood makes it less susceptible to ants, termites, fungi, and other biodegraders of trees. And due to that, you can find cedar poles in the woods that have been standing there for years, if not decades. Uh, the average cedar can last about 150 years after death before it completely decomposes. The core will rot before the sap wood will. So the heartwood will often be hollowed out, uh, on a, especially on a large tree. The, the core often rots out before the outside ever does. And they're a very resilient tree. The tree can continue to live with very minimal live bark. If there's a strip on a hug size, you know, 20 inch diameter cedar tree, and there's a strip of bark that's only four inches wide that's living, that tree is still alive. And that tree is doing just fine. They are very resilient that way. And all that resiliency lends them to our advantage. Often, you're going to find a lot of dry wood in a cedar bush. All that dead standing wood is good kindling. But it's also good building material. You can go into a cedar bush, cut 30 saplings that are 15, 20 feet tall, maybe 5 to 6 inches in diameter at the bottom, or less, sometimes 4. Take the bark off of a living cedar, dig the roots out of a cedar, lash those all together, and make a lodge very quickly, whether it's a lean-to or a wigwam or a teepee, whatever it may be. Then you can take the bark off of some of those trees and start to start to shingle the entire structure. You can build an entire home out of just a, a bunch of cedar trees in the middle of a cedar bush very easily. They're very popular for log cabin building and log homes in general. 
the boards, as we all know, cedar fence boards, cedar deck boards, all that kind of stuff. It's cedar wood. It's long lasting. It's resilient. It's durable, especially for how light it is. I can list so many things you can do with white cedar. The roots in the Western Great Lakes are very popular for making birch bark canoes, whereas here where I live, black spruce is more popular, though I personally like using the white cedar more. The wood has been used for the ribs, sheathing, and gunnels of birch bark canoes since time immemorial. The wood is also used for a lot of other things because it is amazingly effective in many tasks. And I think we talked about this in the trees episode way back in season one of the podcast, but let's get back into this. The wood can be split both 90 degrees and 180 degrees to the grain or with the grain or perpendicular to the grain. You can delaminate the tree grain by grain by splitting perfectly in half with even pressure. If you soak the wood, that peeling and splitting can be done even finer to the point that you can get down to the point that you can't use a knife to trim the wood anymore because it doesn't have structural integrity anymore. You need to use scissors or shears. All of these aspects make the wood very useful for making baskets and again the sheathing and ribs of a birch bark canoe. But you can use it for other things. The ricing sticks, the the, uh, knockers that we use to knock monomen or wild rice into the canoe. You can make very light knife sheaths out of it. You can make bookmarks with it. You can make very fine kindling with it. My favorite uh, craft to do with, uh, with uh, sorry, white cedar is to make what we call split cedar fans. Go to our Instagram. You can find photos of it there. I'll probably be doing a TikTok on a split cedar fan very soon. We also did it. Uh, I also demonstrated how to make one on Peter Kelly's channel, The Woodland Escape, on YouTube when we talked about the sugar bush last year. Very, very beautiful craft that gets you into your knife skills and gets you into practicing your splitting techniques. When we talk about the old school Nishnabek sugar bush, before we had metal spiles, we would hatchet tap by striking. We talked about this in the sugar bush episode, I believe a year or two ago, uh, where you split down spiles, flat spiles out of uh, white cedar wood. Take your hatchet knock it into the tree and, and make an, a gash in the tree horizontally. You set that flat spile in there and then you chip the bark and slash the bark until you got a V groove going down to where that spile is and the sap hits that spile and drips down to your bucket waiting on the ground. There's so many things you can do with white cedar. So many things. It's split cedar fence, log homes, lodges, both their covering, their lashing, and their frame kindling, firewood, all that kind of stuff. The traditional boxes that we carry our eagle feathers and eagle wing fans inside of are made of carved cedar. White cedar, when it's straight grained and and not free, is one of the most exquisite woods to work with for so many different projects. It's used by deer as a heavy browse for wintertime, so much so that they can often denude ecosystems of cedar in the right conditions when the population is high. Uh, Porcupine will live off of cedar bark as well. Turkeys will live off of the seeds as well as some of the, uh, the browse as well. Rabbits and squirrel will also go after the bark and the buds as well as the seeds and the foliage. They are a very common food in many different directions that way for wildlife. They're also a very good habitat for cedar waxwings, bohemian waxwings, nuthatches, chickadees, and many other birds that are here in the wintertime or at least in the shoulder seasons. 
It is a very beneficial tree for hedges in modern landscaping to help give privacy, but also to reduce dust from roads getting onto the property. They are the one place you see them really do suffer is in high salinity situations. Uh, road salt is a big issue here in Ontario for the cedars. It does cause them, they will continue to, to survive, but they won't be thriving. They often become disfigured, uh, they become discolored in their foliage, and that can impede their photosynthesis in the summertime. There's a lot of other things that are going on there. So road salinity, uh, salinity in the soil and w uh, wetlands from road salt is a big deal here. And of course, naturally occurring salt on the east coast is also an effect to the white cedars there. The white cedar has a place in Anishinaabek traditions. It is considered one of the four sacred medicines that are used in ceremony. It is often referred to as Nokomis Gijik or Nokomis Shkub, talking about the grandmother cedar and its feminine nature in ceremony and used by women as a medicine, as a cedar bath, as well as as a medicine for them. Cedar also has a very dense vitamin C content even in wintertime, in its scales, also as foliage. Meaning you can make cedar tea that has the equivalent of three cups of orange juice per cup of cedar tea. Now, some people worry about the thujone oil because it is present in the foliage and it does get expressed from the heat of the water in your tea. I will say right now that if you're that worried, pour off the little oil slick you see on the top of your cup and you should be just fine. Uh, pregnant and nursing women should not consume cedar tea and should not consume any conifers during their pregnancy whatsoever. Nursing mothers should be careful with it as well as it is a neurotoxin and can harm babies as they are smaller and more susceptible to, uh, to the weaker doses of thujon oil in the tea. So be mindful of that as well. With all that said and done, there's many, many other aspects of the white cedar. It is a timeless tree here in Ontario and much of the American Northeast and the Canadian East. It is a tree that is dished in folklore, in stories, in art, so many different directions. Its closest relatives are the Western cedars, the Western, uh, the Northwestern redwood, as well as the Western red cedar. It is a beautiful tree that is timeless. The oldest ones being well over a thousand years old. Some of them being tiny little craggy things that are tiny little bonsai looking trees that grow on Cypress Lake and other regions of the Bruce Peninsula in Georgian Bay and on Lake Huron. Other locations such as in Michigan on certain islands like South Manitou Island have a large, massive, old growth cedars. And these trees are not endangered by any means, but they have the challenge of being very well consumed by deer and other wildlife. So whenever possible, encourage thinning of cedar bush, as well as protection of certain populations or stands of cedar, especially old growth cedars, from A, human intervention and logging, as well as wildlife consumption. So with all that said and done, how can we have a better relationship with cedar? Well, first off, find some, learn how to identify them, learn how to identify them when they're babies, adults, as well as when they're old and dead, learn how to work with their bark. It's an amazing kindling for making tinder bundles or what's more properly confer, uh, considered a kindling bundle. Their fluffy bark can be easily broken up and shredded up and processed into very fine fiber that makes very good rope. 
You can strip the bark and make very good cord. I've made snares with them. I've made a lot of different things. I've woven baskets and bags with them. Learn everything you can from the tip to the toe, from the very top of the tree all the way down to its roots. Learn everything you can about it. Because it's our first friend in bushcraft. It's one of the softest woods to carve. It's one of the easiest things to split. It burns really well. It smells lovely when you work with it. It doesn't need much things to preserve it. You don't need to seal it with oil and all that kind of stuff. I often just leave my cedar boxes that I carve and cedar fans untreated altogether because they have that beautiful aromatic. They're phenomenal to have inside of a sweat lodge or a sauna as cedar boughs, but also cedar wood. Because every time it heats up, it becomes aromatic once more. Learn everything you can about this tree because it's a great friend to have. It is one of our first friends in bushcraft. When I was a kid, it was the first tree I learned to identify because it grew around my home. And I learned about its medicines. I learned about how to process it. You can turn to amazing salves. One of my favorite salves is what we call, it's a form of what we call minigun. And that's where I take a bunch of cedar uh, scales, chop them up as fine as I can, put them into a slow cooker with a fat. Sometimes coconut oil, I prefer to use bare fat. And I cook it for 24 hours like that at low heat. And then I strain it, squeeze out all the oil, and I mix it half and half with, with spruce gum that's been clarified and processed. And then I mix a little bit of beeswax in there just to help firm it up. Not a lot, like a tablespoon per cup kind of thing, or even less, like a teaspoon of beeswax per cup of uh, minigun. And sometimes I just do without it. I like to have it more like a paste, especially when I have cuts or abrasions. It's an amazing healing salve to put onto cuts and abrasions. I don't recommend any kind of oil-based salve for burns, at least not until they've uh, cooled down completely and removed all the heat. But they help me with wounds of all kinds, scrapes, cuts, lacerations, punctures. I often use that cedar minigun to help clean that wound up and seal that wound off and heal it. And so there's a lot of uses to it, a ton of uses. And so get out there and know your trees. Learn the cedar tree and make it your friend, Arbor Vitae. It was also uh, that, that vitamin C content that makes it the, uh, the theoretical medicine that the Mi'kmaq people, the Ilnu people, gave to Jacques Cartier and his crew to stave off scurvy when they were dying from it because of its vitamin C content. There's still arguments about what it may actually have been, but most botanists and most indigenous people are in agreement that it was probably the eastern cedar tree because it has scales, it has foliage in wintertime, it has a large vitamin C content, and was present in the area of the contact with Jacques Cartier. So, again, get out there, know the cedar tree, the eastern white cedar tree, also known as Arbor Vitae, Thusia occidentalis. Enjoy the rest of the show, folks. Before you listen to the rest of the podcast, I just want to fill in a quick correction. You'll hear me say on several occasions, 210,000 hours. Um, just want to clarify, I'm putting in this correction at 627 in the morning, Eastern Standard Time. This episode was recorded between 2.30 and 3.30 in the morning of this day. And uh, I was not well caffeinated. What I meant to say was 210 hours, over 210 hours, not over 210,000 hours, which is still a terrifying number, but you'll understand what I'm talking about when you listen to this. So enjoy the rest of the show, folks. Hey there, folks. So, this episode is pretty straightforward, doing more with less, trying to understand that concept when it comes down to our gear, when it comes down to our techniques, when it comes down to 
all of the philosophies surrounding bushcraft, survival, woodcraft, camping, whatever you want to describe it as, I think it's something that we overlook. Uh, a lot of people who get into bushcraft really focus on the gear. They really focus on the tools, and they want to have you know, X amount of knives in their collection, X amount of axes in their collection, X amount of saws in their collection, X amount of paracord in their bag, X amount of paracord in their pocket. They'll make paracord bracelets, they'll make paracord anklets, they'll make paracord slings and paracord necklaces and Lord knows what else. And then the redundancy of their fire kits, which is something I support. I do support the idea of carrying more than one way to light fire, by all means. If you can carry a thousand lighters and it's not going to weigh you down, do it. But when it comes down to the real premise and tenets of bushcraft, there's these certain phrases we always hear. The more you know, the less you carry. A famous adage from Morse Kohansky. Um, my good friend Lucas Wagner, of course, with his caveat of the more you know, the less you carry, the more time it takes. All the way to ultralight backpacking. All the way over to the four-tool philosophy from Nick Dillingham and something that I've helped support over the oh, seven, eight, almost nine years now, the 4-2 philosophy. And of course with Dave Canterbury and the Pathfinder School with his philosophies of the 10 C's of survivability and his 5-tool system and all that kind of stuff that has uh, a lot of heritage and legacy in bushcraft over the years. There's all these perspectives and then we get very gear-heavy. Uh, it's, it's no secret that we often use on the Bushcraft Podcast here, the Canadian Bushcraft Podcast, the top 10 tools or the top 10 gear. Uh, some of our very first episodes of the podcast were on equipment, on gear, and even on fairly regular basis, the, the tools of the trade episodes, because we know people are going to listen to those. And that's the, the dirty secret of it all. We, we know you listen to those, and therefore we're going to make those episodes. But when it comes down to it, the real hardened goal of bushcraft is to do more with less and that's really the philosophy that I try to espouse on people as much as possible using knowledge first gear second using your mental toolkit before you use your physical toolkit and this is something that I wanted to bring up again we've talked about this in certain amounts and certain degrees and certain lengths before but because we've done so much gear heavy episodes over the last couple months I wanted to really bring home that all of that is irrelevant if you don't have the knowledge to carry it. And it's all irrelevant if you can't carry it with you. I would love to bring, you know, five axes and two chainsaws and a dozen handsaws and Lord knows how many knives strapped to my belt and around my neck and on my pack and in my pack and strapped to my canoe and my ATV and everything else. I would love to do that. But it, it becomes a bit absurd to be frank, uh, even to a certain degree of like when we're looking beyond trail maintenance and wood cutting, but start taking, you know, two axes on a camping trip, carrying multiple knives. Now, there's a limit to that. I still think that having a small knife and a larger knife is always a good combination, or having a wood-specific knife, your what some people may refer to as a bushcraft knife, along with a really good skinning knife, um, or for even a fillet knife on that, li on that list. And of course, if you're doing base camps or hunt camps or fishing camps, you're going to have different kinds of tools for those scenarios. And so I'm not saying that that stuff is 
irrelevant in that sense. I'm not saying that those things are unnecessary, but you'd be amazed at what you can get by with minimal equipment, how far you can go, how creative you can get. We talked about this uh, with Rye on the creativity episode last year around this time, and we've talked about this during the four tool philosophy. We've talked about episode, I think, two fall, uh, two Augusts back. You'd have to go down, scroll through the over 210,000 hours that has been recorded on this podcast. I did the math last week and it boggled my damn mind. 210 plus thousand hours. <sighs> Absurd. The fact that people have co- contacted us and said that they've listened to the entire podcast and they can't wait for more. Uh, okay. That's, that's scary that you've spent that much time in your life listening to me and Rye and other people talk about this stuff. That's terrifying. Anyways, what we're trying to really get down to here is how can we get creative enough to do more with less? The Knowledge First episode talks about this very same thing, the four-tool philosophy episode, as I've said already. I don't want to get too redundant and repeat myself too many times, but... I do recommend going back to those episodes if you want to understand this better and get a more well-rounded understanding uh, of this concept. When we look at our gear, it's a finite resource. Let's say we decide to go on a three-day canoe trip. Or let's make this even longer. We decide we want to go for a couple of weeks. Maybe it's a backcountry hunting trip. Maybe it's just a backcountry canoe trip. And you're going to be going from you know Wabakimi park all the way up into northern Quebec. You're going to cross around James Bay area and you're going to go way north. You're only going to be able to carry what you can carry. You're going to only be able to take what you can take. What fits in your bag and fits on your shoulders and doesn't weigh you down. Right? We don't have you know, the magic school bus. We don't have Mary Poppins purse. We don't have the tickle trunk from Mr. Dress Up any of that kind of stuff. We have whatever fits in that bag and is light enough for us to carry. And so with that kind of concept and that kind of parameter, we need to be very creative with what we take and we need to be creative with what we can make on the landscape. You can only take so much cord. Maybe you have a spool of bank line. Maybe you got a spool of paracord. Maybe you got a couple hundred feet of each. Maybe you got fishing line. Maybe you got some wire. Eventually that's going to weigh down. And eventually you're going to use it up. You know, you're going to have your guy lines for your tarp. If you're using a tarp shelter, you're going to have uh, a certain amount of bank line in a net or fishing line on your fishing rod, whatever it may be. But at the end of the day, you can only take so much of that. And you can only take so many tools. And you can only take so much food you got to be able to supplement that from the landscape if you're going to be out there for a long time. Some people supplement it by simply fishing and catching trout and bass and pike, uh, whatever fish they have in their region, and that's going to help supplement the protein in their diet. Great. That's a great way to cut back on how, many, how much meat you got to bring with you. Other people, if they're going out in the fall or they're going out in fall into winter, they'll bring a shotgun and they're going to get ptarmigan and grouse and Maybe they'll set some snares and catch rabbit. That's a great way to get by. But there's still finite resources there. You lose a few lures, that tackle box gets a lot lighter suddenly. And you got to be a little bit more selective with how you cast and everything. After, you know, 
half a dozen missed shots on a grouse, and that does happen, folks, that suddenly become those last few shells you got in your bag because you're only going to be able to carry so many pounds of ammo on that trip. You're going to suddenly be a lot more selective with your shots, and maybe you're going to pass on shots that could have fed you. You see what I'm getting here? Where I'm going with this? You got to be mindful about what you're doing with the resources you have, and you got to be able to be willing to be creative. For me, part of that creativity is taking a slingshot. I bring the shotgun, sure, with all the ammo in the world that I can carry, but if I start getting down to like my last six, seven, eight shells, maybe last ten shells. I'm going to start looking for nice, smooth river pebbles to take grouse with and rabbits with and whatnot. Maybe if I'm snaring along the way, I'll start making snares from the landscape because I've, you know, a brass snare, brass wire snare can be used multiple times on a rabbit, but after a while the metal starts to kink and starts to work harden in those kinks and eventually becomes like any other wire fragile in those spots and suddenly your snares aren't working as well because they're breaking off and the rabbits are escaping or they're not holding tight enough or they're not even letting it go through and and, and tighten down around the neck on that on that snowshoe hair and suddenly that wire is not as useful anymore it's finite we have a razor sharp you know a surgically sharp knife you know, you got it honed up to 6,000 grit on a stone and you stropped it 200 times with a buffing compound and then buffed, uh, st- uh, stropped it a thousand more times on an even finer grit stropping compound. You may not want to use that edge every single time you need to make a cut. You may not want to use your knife as frequently as you would if you were back home. Like when I'm around the camp, when I'm around Camp Mud or I'm on a, a nearby camping trip where I know I'm only going to be out for a few days, I can get pretty aggressive with my cuts. I'm going to make very, you know, rough, aggressive hacks and slashes into wood. I'll cut through a knot. I'll cut through many knots. I'll split the, uh, I'll split the wood. I'll baton it with my knife instead of going for my axe or hatchet. I'm going to do all that kind of stuff that everyone else does. But when it gets into like a two, three-week trip... Maybe I don't want to have to maintain that edge as frequently. Maybe I just want to use that knife as little as possible. A, to save the edge. B, to reduce the risk of injury because I'm out there for longer and I might be getting more and more tired as the days go and I don't want to mess up and make a slip up and injure myself when I didn't have to. There's a lot of reasons to suddenly do more with less. Use your knife less. Use your axe less. Use the saw more instead of the axe. Start making it so that you get twig bundles instead of feather sticks. Because you can gather the twig bundles and all that fine kindling with your bare hands. Instead of having to chop up wood, split that wood, and then shave that wood up. All every time you need to make a fire. All the while you're surrounded by a good hardy conifer forests and you just gather dead twigs maybe I'm going to save all the times I can be using my ferro rod for emergencies and practice with it yes before I go but depend on things that are easier to use and eventually as the sea, as that trip goes start relying on the ferro rod more near the end when I don't want to be expending my last few matches or I don't want to be expending the last little bit of gas in that lighter anymore. 
and I can save those tools for specific occasions. There's different ways to look at it, how we can do more with less. The majority of shelters that we build in bushcraft don't need rope. They don't need cordage of any kind. You can get by without any cordage, even from the land cordage. You can, yes, you can go over and pull spruce roots out of the ground and tie shelters really well with those. I've built many lean-tos and big heavy-duty contraption-style shelters with just spruce roots. You can go over to a basswood tree or hickory tree for most of the growing season uh, and peel the bark off and shuck the outer bark off the inner bark and use that inner bark and lash things together. I've done it all the way until now in February. To get basswood bark, I just heat it over the fire. I cut a stick, warm it over the fire, peel that bark off, and then shuck off the outer bark. And I've got very good, strong, durable fiber that I can lash many things together. Tripods, uh, cooking ranges, shelters, uh, ladders, whatever I want, really. But we don't need it. It's not necessary for everything. If you build a lean-to and you have Y poles available that you found in the bush out there. You get two Y poles and you rest a ridge pole on those Y poles and then you lean those into the frame of your shelter, into the two trees or uprights that you've had that you've got. You have a lean-to ridge that will hold a lot of weight. You'd be amazed at how much weight that can hold and it didn't require any cordage. When we make arch frame shelters, like a wigwam or a hunter's shelter or a super shelter, the Kohansky super shelter, even Moore's brought this up on many occasions. He, he hammered this home to a lot of us, though not all of us necessarily listened. You don't need to remove the branches. In fact, it's better to leave the branches. A, the branches, unlike the branch scar, which may be sharp, won't cut and pierce your tarps. Secondly, all those branches can be woven and interlocked to hold the shelter together, saving your cordage. In Moore's survival kits, what, that he would describe, you would have 100 feet of parachute cord, proper, proper 550-200 parachute cord, parachute shroud line cord. Not necessarily what we get from Rothko and Army Surplus stores these days, but the proper stuff. And in amongst all that, you have to make your two pairs of snow, uh, your, your pair of snowshoes, your Roycroft pack frame, and your super shelter with just 100 feet of cord. And that sounds very doable until you start looking at how many knots you got to make and how much space takes up with those knots. Now, if you don't know your knots really well and you're doing what we call a fugget knot, F-U-G-G-E-T, as in fugget, just tie whatever, that's going to take up a lot of cord. And so doing more with less, we would say use the Canada Jam Knot, the proper Canada Jam Knot, not what everybody teaches on YouTube, which is a slip knot. That's that's just a slip knot. That's not a proper jam knot. The jam knot is a slip knot followed up with a half hitch that interlocks with it and jams the fiber together so it doesn't slip loose. That's the point of the Canada Jam Knot. Four of those, one on each corner of the log frame for super shelter, is all the cord you need. So all you'd be using up is the length of cord you need to require to cover the log frame for the bed frame of your lodge, and then the jam knot, which requires very little cordage to actually make the knot itself. That saves you up all that other cord to go towards those snowshoes and the pack frame and whatever else you may need when you're out there. But we can get beyond that. 
I've built super shelters where I just found two down logs that were big enough that I could just put a frame on top of those that isn't going to move. Uh, frame being like my bed frame and then my bows for the mattress. And I would just jam the poles in between those logs in a certain way that they lock and don't let it bulge out or pop out. I don't have to dig them into the ground. I don't have to do anything fancy. I just drive them into those logs, wedging them against the logs weight. And then I bend them into the arch they need to be. That didn't require any cord. Okay. What about when it comes down to, we've talked about lean-tos, we've talked about arch frame shelters. You got that classic A-frame debris hut. A lot of people make it like a tripod with one long leg, with one, one of the three legs being extremely long, and they tie it like a tripod. When I was taking my first survival courses with Gino Ferry's school, Survival in the Bush Incorporated, we never used cord on the survival shelter portion of the course. We never did. You were not allowed to. You had to figure out how to put the shelter together without rope. And that included not digging spruce root, not peeling bark, nothing like that. You just had to use the wood around you and the landscape around you. And I've seen some really, really creative rigs for that. Uh, just simply pinning it. We've had we've done this before with some of our students where you do like an alpine uh, an alpine or what's called a subarctic lean to, where it's shaped like half of an A-frame debris hut, and you jam that pole into the bark of a bigger tree, and nine times out of ten it holds. If the student moves around too much or you bump into your shelter too much, yeah, it's going to come down crashing down on you, which is not good. What's better is if you can find a forked tree. And you jam that ridge pole into the fork, into the crotch of the tree. And then build your shelter off of that. Or you find a big stump. Or you find a big log. Or you find a big rock. Or you find a ledge. Or you find a hill that's got a good, you know, angle to it. And you jam the pole into that. And then build your shelter off of it. That's what the lean-to, the debris hut, the, the wiki-up, the wigwam conical shelters can be built with three fork sticks jammed into each other and then all the other poles laid into the crotch of that i've done it multiple times a lot of traditional indigenous subterranean shelters were they would dig up the root balls of big pine trees and such and they would turn it upside down peel off all the branches peel off all the bark and they would turn it upside down and interlock those roots at the top, at the apex of their subterranean dwellings and then that would be a durable enough, solid enough frame to have everything connect. What if we want to build something a little more long term? We can do dovetailing. You take that fancy little saw you always bring with you and you make dovetail cuts into logs and poles and interlock them with that. You don't have to use nails you don't have to, and you don't have to use cordage. The, these aspects of doing more with less you have just the material in front of you. You have your four tools, maybe five tools, and you make do. You make it work. You improvise. Improvisation is, and I think I've talked about this before. When I was in high school, yeah, I know I've talked about this before on the show, but I'll talk about it again. For those who've just come into, into the podcast and are now thinking, wow, they got 210,000 plus thousand hours? Yeah, yeah, of me and other people like me ranting on tangents and often repeating themselves it's a vicious circle anyways when we look at where was i going with this 
improvisation. You got to train it. It's it's not a like some people are talented with it, but you still got to learn the basics of improvisation. Take improv acting classes. Do it. Like improv acting, whose line is it anyway style. Go and take those courses because that's what happened to me. I had to take improv acting classes and I got better at thinking on my feet and seeing things outside of their reality of what we perceive. That sounds really metaphysical and metaphorical, but it's true. You you look at something and we all see the same thing. But when you think outside the box and you start perceiving it as other opportunities, you can gre- uh, create much more creative results. You can make very creative solutions to a very complex problem. I think I've talked about before where we had, we were out fishing. And a friend of mine forgot to bring bobbers and we were in this moving creek where you kind of wanted to have something that can keep the the, the lure in one spot, the, the ball of worms. We're going after catfish and bullhead specifically. And so he forgot to bring bobbers. I looked around and I saw a goldenrod stock that had two gall balls. Now galls on a goldenrod are caused by a parasitic wasp that injects their larva into the stock of the goldenrod. And as that larva develops and grows, the goldenrod grows around it like this big wart. And on some occasions, I'd say 90% of goldenrod stocks that you see will have one gall on it. Maybe 75% will have one gall on it. Sometimes they have two. On really, really rare occasions, there's three. But usually there's one, sometimes two. On this occasion, we had several twos around us. There was all these goldenrod galls, and two stalks had two double galls. And so we took, I took those, trimmed off the rest of the stalk, kept those two together so it looked like a big peanut, and I tied my string between them and just tossed it out into the water, and guess what? It worked. That's improvisation. Improvising and being creative gets you to the point where you can do more with less. And so when we look at all these options in front of you, what gear are you bringing that you realize is a true redundancy? How many knives do you really need with you? How many axes do you truly, honestly want to carry? How much gear do you want to bring when you could be bringing more food? And even in food, how can you supplement? What do you know for a fact is out there on the land that you can supplement with at that time of year? If it's, you know, mid-July into August and you're up in the boreal forest, there's a good chance you'll come across blueberries that pack a ton of energy, has tons of sugar in them, which, uh, which you know, produces glucose and everything else that basically makes the engine run, all that kind of stuff. And, of course, if you have tackle box of any kind with you and you've got fishing line and hooks with you of any kind, you can be catching fish on those creeks and on those rivers and on those lakes. Not so much in the spruce bogs, but almost everywhere else, you got fish. If you have a slingshot and you're going up and you got the you, you're legal for it, if you're legal for it, go ahead. You can take grouse and ptarmigan and whatnot with a slingshot. It's amazing how effective as long as you practice with them. And you got to practice with both actual shot, like round ball, like um, ball bearings of different sizes. I like you know three eighths of an inch steel ball bearings that I can get at the hardware store for dirt cheap. But 
you want to also practice with random pebbles and see how accurate you can be with them and actually be able to forecast where your shots are going to go because there's going to be a situation where you realize that your ball bearings are finite. You only have so many of them with you. And due to that, you need to be able to improvise with materials nearby. I've taken grouse, to be perfectly frank, with pine cones. Yeah. Yeah, that was a weird one, but it worked. I, I couldn't find any gravel around us. We were in this kind of grassy spot, but surrounded by spruce, and the grouse jumped up into a tree. It was a rough grouse, not a spruce grouse. It was a rough grouse, even though it was up in a spruce tree. And all I had around me was pine cones. And there were some big, heavy pine cones, so I broke them down to pieces that are about a one-inch diameter. And I launched them from my slingshot, and I knocked a grouse out of the tree. And I, it didn't die instantly. It was stunned. I had, to, I had to wring its neck and finish it off. But I was able to get meat that day to fill the cook pot. Being able to know all your forageable foods, all those herbs, all those root vegetables that are out there on the landscape, being able to know what barks you can peel and cook at what times a year. Being able to track these things, this mental toolkit you build up, are what's going to make you able to improvise when you're in a situation that is less than ideal. How many of us have forgotten things in, at home when we go on trips? I am infamous for forgetting cutlery at home. I forget to bring spoons. I forget to bring uh, forks. Knives, most of the time I just take my camping knife and that's my knife for whatever food I'm, I'm eating. But forks and spoons, oh yeah, I forget those all the time. And so I've gotten very creative with making spoons that don't require me bringing a spoon carving set. And I know that's breaking John Wager's heart right now, but it's true. I can get by without needing a fancy wooden uh, wood carving set to get spoons on in the field. I can get a piece of uh, cedar wood or any really any wood that has a knot in it and the way you split in line with that knot you get a divoted piece of wood on the side you get a curved piece of wood that's got a shoulder and it looks like a spoon frankly and then you simply use that to scoop food into your mouth it's all a spoon is is a mouth shovel as Nick Dillingham always says so when I look at that situation boom it takes me uh, as little time as it takes to split the piece of wood out if I really want to soak up a lot of soup into that spoon and, and drink the soup out of it instead of just you know pouring it into my mouth from the cup bowl or pot that I'm uh, that I'm eating out of which is usually what I end up doing with soup at home even when I have spoons uh, I'll coal burn a little divot into it or I'll take the tip of my knife and just chisel out a little divot that holds the liquid in there if I'm on a river or a lake shore and I come across mussel shells, I can split a stick, wedge that shell into that split, take a little piece of bark strip and lash that tight with a clove hitch, and I now have a spoon. I can take a piece of birch bark, cut it into the shape of a spoon, and then fold the handle. We've got a video of this on YouTube, uh, on our YouTube channel, Canadian Bushcraft's YouTube channel, where I just fold a spoon out of a piece of bark. There are so many ways to get by without having that spoon with me and not having to sit there for, you know, 5, 10, 15, 40, 60 minutes, 90 minutes trying to get a spoon made while my rice gets cold or while my soup gets cold. You, you see what I'm getting at here? 
when we learn to improvise and we learn to do without, when you start to live a more Spartan existence, you can get by with very minimal equipment. And it's not even, you know, surviving. You, you thrive, you're living, you're doing just fine, you're happy. How many of us have forgotten a flashlight at home? And you end up using your phone as your flashlight and that battery drains fast but you have candles in your survival kit and you come across trash all the time. You take a Swiss Army knife or you take even your regular knife or a chunk of flint or a sharp piece of quartz. You take that tin can, you punch a bunch of holes all through it. And I literally mean, you just got to punch a bunch of holes. Some people do these real fancy lanterns where they cut two slots and those slots become winged doors that open up and allow you to cast a light in one direction. Most lanterns in the old days didn't look like that, unless they had glass, and glass was expensive. The majority of old 16th century, 17th century, 18th century, and even 19th century lanterns were perforated cans. They were tin, or brass, or aluminum. Sometimes even steel, that was real thin, but that was pretty rare. And they perforated patterns into them, and that sheds enough light for you to see through the woods with your little candle while protecting it from the wind. How do you carry it? A little hank of wire. You know, I've gotten by with just punching two holes at the top and threading a piece of willow branch through that. You don't have to suddenly make a land, uh, you know, a torch and become quest for fire. You can get by with just whatever trash you find out there, make a candle lantern, and carry a candle. If you don't have a candle, okay, and you don't necessarily need light to be traveling with, but maybe even with tra traveling. Find that tin can out there. Maybe somebody brought some tuna with them and they left the lid attached. You push that lid down into the can. You go get some toilet paper from your fur, uh, from your hygiene kit, or you get some cotton gauze, 100% cotton gauze, don't get the synthetic stuff, from your first aid kit. You, uh, you lay that along that little lid as a ramp. You fill it with whatever cooking oil or fat you have around. And I've heard people go on about how you got to use this kind of oil, that kind of oil. I have used some of the most absurd oils. I've used raccoon fat that I scraped off the pelt right there on the spot, right into the can. I've used olive oil, coconut oil. I've used avocado oil. I've used whatever cooking oils people have in their pack. I've used uh, Vaseline that people had, chapstick that they had whatever they had, and I mush it together with that wick that I've made out of gauze. Or it could be a clump of cattail fluff. You take a bunch of cattail fluff, fluff it up, and then make a pinch of it, stick it in the middle of that oil or wax, and light it on fire, and watch how it becomes a lantern that you can carry around with you. You can just put it on a piece of bark or a piece of wood so you don't burn your hand, and walk around with that light in front of you. You don't need a bunch of equipment. If you lose something or forget something, you can improvise. Improvisation is the key here. It really is the key to bushcraft. When you start to improvise, when you have things around you, but you don't have what you need that you're used to having, improvisation will allow you to get creative. So train that. Go out with the gear, like go out with all of your equipment that you're always going to go out with, that you always want to have with you. And then say to yourself, I have that item in my bag. I'm not going to use that item on this trip, though. I have it with me as a safety measure, but I'm going to get by without it. This can be as simple as the flashlight scenario I just, I, I just spelled out, 
or this could be your sh uh, your shelter. You leave your sleeping bag and your bug net and your hammock or whatever in the bag, and you're going to try and live without those things. And then when you've gotten good at that, you've built you know enough lean-tos, enough debris huts, although I'm not a big fan of debris huts, and you've done it with just natural materials all this time, now remove the cordage. Use only natural cordage, spruce roots, bark, whatever. And then on the next trip, don't use those. Try to figure out ways to get by without any kind of cord at all. All the while you have that safety measure in the bag. So as things fail, it, wind comes in, the rain it gets harder, and your shelter doesn't work, it falls apart on you, you can climb into a tent or into a hammock with a sleeping bag or under quilt and top quilt and warm your body back up and get a good night's sleep knowing that you have to try again the next day and figure it out. This is how you learn. Be safe at all times. Learning is not, you know, diving into the deep end. Learning is waiting. Wading through the shallow end. Wading in a kiddie pool. Figuring out how do you float. Figuring out how you move while you float. Learning how to hold your breath and then get air without swallowing water. That is learning. Not dumping in on the, uh, jumping in on the deep end. And so when we look at improvisation, we look at doing more with less. There is a thousand and one directions we can go with them. And if they work, it's not stupid. If it works, it's not a bad idea. If it's safe and effective, do it. How many times have you heard me talk about the time I had to use a tin can lid to, f to open up a fish and, pro and process it for eating? When I was younger, I was working with anthropologists and archaeologists, and one of them told me the story of hunting with indigenous people down in South America. I don't know, I, uh, I don't know exactly where, I can't remember, I was like 14, 15 years old when they were teaching us this, and he talked about how they had a machete with them, and they got a small deer. And he had a belt knife on him, and he went to start gutting the deer, and they pushed him away and shook their heads quizzically at him. And they took the spine of that machete, and they shattered the forelimb of that deer, the shank bone, the cannon bone. They shattered it with the spine of their machete. And that green bone fracture, they were, allowed, they were able to poke the bone out of the hide, pull that bone out and use that to gut the deer, saving the edge of his knife for another day. Vice versa, um, I think it was Andrew Zimmerman, was that his name? He was a chef. He was a cook that traveled around and did this show. I think it was called Weird Food or something like that. And in one episode, he was in he was in Africa. I think he was with the Dolby Johansi people, uh, the, what some people refer to as the San Bushmen. Um, and they caught a bird with a snare. And he walked up with his knife to cut the cord. And they all stopped him, shook their heads, and carefully removed the bird from the snare and reset the snare. Because making cord takes time. And cutting it every time you use it wastes time. And so there's these perspectives of looking at the land. I can't remember if his name was Andrew Zimmerman or what now. I should, have been, I should have Googled this before I decided to point out that anecdote. Anyways, you can get by with a lot less than you think you need. You really, really can. As long as you know and have practiced your skills. There's a lot, there's that Dunning-Kruger effect 
of you've listened to 210 plus thousand hours of the Canadian Bushcraft podcast and watched all their YouTube videos and TikToks, including the ones where it's just Caleb with his dog. And therefore, you're confident with your skills because you did it. You watched everything, you listened to everything. But you haven't practiced it, and then you go out. Don't do that. That's Dunning-Kruger waiting to happen. You, you need to practice. And you need to practice on a regular basis. And this is something that I hammer home a lot because it's true. And not everybody likes to hear it. And not everybody wants to do it. If you want bushcraft to be part of your heart and soul and being and personality and identity, then you need to freaking live it. You need to practice it on a regular basis. If you turn on the tap every single day and wash your hands and brush your teeth and drink the water, that is as frequent as you need to practice your firelighting skills and your identification of plant skills and your tracking skills and your weather forecasting skills. Just as frequently as turning on the tap, flipping a light switch, turning on your car, turning on the air conditioning or the heat in your house, turning on the stove. It has to be part of your life. And one of the best ways to do that is to practice. Take courses. Uh, we run courses. We're going to be announcing our courses at the end of this month for the, uh, for the foreseeable 2023 and 2024. But if you can't come to Canadian Bushcraft, there's survival schools and bushcraft classes across the world. People like Paul Kirtley, Ray Mears, uh, Dave Westcott, who would never call himself a bushcrafter, uh, Kelly Harlton, Randy Briusma, all these amazing organizations across the world that you can learn from. Take as many classes as you can with these people and then add improvisation to that. Take improving classes every chance you get. Improv acting, as silly as it sounds, is the number one thing that has built me into who I am today. I can easily think on my feet and make an answer because... It, We've talked about this in the past of paralysis by analysis. You get into a situation and you freeze and you don't know what to do. And there, there's so many options. Pick one. Even if it's a bad option, it's better than no option. Even if it was a bad choice, it's better than no choice. You need to make a decision. Improvisation has helped me make those decisions faster. But more importantly, they let me think fast enough to make sure it's going to be a good decision of some sort. Right? When we use the STOP acronym, secure, think, observe, plan, during the planning, we figure out what we have, what we don't have, how to make do without it. Right? And so that is doing more with less. Learning that your mental toolkit can be massive. And that makes your physical a physical toolkit smaller and lighter. The more you know, the less you carry. And when you do that, and you practice that on a regular basis, you would be amazed at how far you will go and how comfortable you can be with the minimalist of equipment. Now, this is the reality of anybody that lives in their local area and the camps in their local area it, it's the truth you can you know what you need out there you know exactly what you need out there so you can be very minimalist 
I have carried here in Ontario packs that weighed less than 10 pounds, less than five pounds on some occasions, not including food, of course, but even then I could keep it under 10 pounds because I can supplement with cattail because I know exactly where all the cattail stands are where I'm going. I know what foods are available when I'm out there, the seasonal foods, all that kind of stuff. When I go to places like South America, or I even go to the western states or western provinces, or I go down to the American Southeast, I carry massive amounts of gear. I carry a 45-pound ruck. And that's because I don't know everything in those areas. I've explored those areas, but I am not a master of those areas. I'm not an expert in those areas. I'm not calling myself an expert here in Ontario either, but I've had... You know, since I was eight years old, I'm going to be 35 this year, well over 20 years to figure it out for Ontario, for Quebec, for Northern, uh, Northeastern America, uh, North America in general. I know this region. I know Manitoba. I know the Great Lakes to the East Coast, and I know the botany, and I know the ecosystems, and I know the animals, and I know the weather very well. I know them intimately. I know what that kind of cloud structure looks like and what it means. I know what this kind of plant can do for me. I know what that kind of animal track should be telling me about the situation I'm in. All that kind of stuff. You take me to the American Southwest. You take me to the Rocky Mountains. You take me to the High Arctic. I'm bringing more gear. Because the, the less I know, the more I carry. When I was in Colombia, and I think I've talked about this before on the podcast, I think during the Knowledge First episode, we were hiking out of the jungle. Me, my buddy Dan, our guides Goran and Alberto. We were leaving the Maloka from the village we were in. About two-thirds of the way out, we watched a man walking into the jungle. We each had like a 30-pound rock minimum. We had our hammocks in there. We had all our medical stuff that we needed, you know, anti-malarial drugs and all that kind of stuff. We had our gear. We had our, we had our equipment in there. We didn't even have food in those packs. And they were like 30 pounds each. And as we're walking out, He's walking in with a water bottle, a hammock, a light, very small machete, probably a lighter or a book of matches or a box of matches in his pocket. We never made him turn out his pocket and show us everything he had, and a shotgun. And it was an old shotgun. It wasn't a 12-gauge. It looked like a 16-gauge single-shot break action. No idea. It could have been an Ivor Johnson champion, for all I know. I don't know what kind of gun it was, but it was a break action. It wasn't a 12-gauge or a 20-gauge. And that's it. A shotgun, a light machete, a hammock, a water bottle. Those were the four things that we could confirm he had, and we were guessing he had some sort of fire lighting device in his pocket. And the only reason we were assuming he had that was he had a lit cigarette, and he was smoking that cigarette as he was walking. And we turned to Goran, one of our guides from Tanboka uh, Nature Preserve, and we said, Goran, like, where's he going? Oh, he's going about double the distance we hiked to get out of here. Maybe triple. He's going to go to a mineral lick or a salt deposit back there in the jungle, and he's going to put that hammock up way high, and he's going to wait for a deer to come by. And he's going to shoot that deer, and he's going to take it home. And I was like, and how is he going to do all that? It's it's late afternoon. He goes, no, he's, he's going to camp out tonight in that hammock way up in the trees, and come dawn, when the deer over at that mineral lick, he'll shoot one. And then he'll gut it, process it, and carry it back out to Letitia, where he's from. And that was, <laughs> that was a trip when I watched that. 
and I thought about it for a while. And I was like, really, what gear do I take when I go for a hunt? Not much more than that. Right, because I'm used to my environment, and he's used to his environment. If I took that guy from Leticia, from the jungle near Tanamboka, flew him to central Ontario, northern Ontario, northern Quebec, he'd, he'd start asking for some more gear. He'd start out probably for clothes, first and foremost, because it'd be cold. But more importantly, probably looking for this and that. He doesn't know what he's going to need out there. He's going to be asking for this kind of equipment, this kind of equipment, because it's all about what you know. Now, you put me in the jungle with my basic survival understandings of what I require and I understand what's in that jungle. I'll probably stay alive until rescue. I'm not going to be able to self-rescue because it is disorienting in the jungle. But I'll be able to survive until rescue finds me because I'm not going to be traveling far. I can tell you that right now. Unless the jaguar or something drives me out of where I found myself lost... I'm staying put. But with that 40-pound ruck, 30-pound ruck, I think it was 30 pounds that we each had, I would have gotten by until people found me. Because I had water filtration systems in there and I knew that the water down there wouldn't be necessarily safe to drink. Uh, I brought a hammock and a bug net. And I believe I even had a tarp, though we never used the tarps all that kind of stuff, plus a machete, plus a first aid kit, plus, you know, headlamps that could be charged from a solar panel. Ironically, in a jungle, it gets dark fast, and it stays dark for long, especially when you're near the equator like that. But, <laughs> there's also the fact that the canopy is thick. So taking that solar panel, like, I was I was lucky that we went to the, the village that we were staying at, because they had clear-cut uh, about a, kilo- a square kilometer, not a square kilometer, a kilometer uh, radius around their village. So there was nothing but sun where we were. So I could charge with the solar panel all the live long day. If I was in the heart of the jungle and lost, that solar panel wouldn't last me long. I can tell you that right now. I would have been con- being very conservative with my headlamp. I would have been very conservative with any electronics I had with me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would have suffered. I'm not saying I would have. it would have been a camping trip. I would have suffered. But I would have survived. Same things when I was in the desert, in the, uh, the high deserts of Colorado, in uh, the Basin Desert. Same things when I was in the Black Hills National Forest in Wyoming. Same thing as when I've been in Alberta. Same thing as when I've been in Pennsylvania and Florida and, and all the other places I've traveled to and camped in. I might not know the location. I may not know everything that's there, but I know enough to stay alive. I know the skills I need to stay alive there. I've practiced my skills so I can make do and improvise where I am. And that makes me fairly comfortable. It doesn't make me, you know, confident. It makes me comfortable, though, knowing that I'll probably stay alive. It'll probably suck, but as long as I don't get bit by a venomous creature of some sort, I will be able to stay alive because I brought this pack. And if I go more and more to those locations and practice in those locations more that pack selling is lighter and lighter and lighter because the more you know the less you carry the larger your mental toolkit the smaller your physical toolkit you can do more with less as that brings us to the end of this episode i want to thank all of you for listening i want to thank all of our supporters at patreon 
for keeping the lights on here at the Canadian Bushcraft Podcast, keeping us motivated to make another 210,000 plus episodes. Or not episodes, hours of episodes. We love all of you. We appreciate all of you. If you want to show your support, go on over to patreon.com slash Canadian Bushcraft. You'll be getting some kickbacks very soon. It can cost you as little as a coffee a month, $1.50 Canadian a month to support us over there at, the, at Patreon to keep the lights on here. Keep Sushi Tracker and their army of ducks from overthrowing us and then invading a small Latin American country. All that kind of stuff that's very important for the future of mankind and humankind in general. Go over there for just $1.50 a month. We'll love every single one of you. We appreciate every single one of you. We hope you enjoyed this episode. We'll see you next time on the Canadian Bushcraft Podcast.